Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. And I, I, I did feel sorry for John, and I felt like even from the beginning there was just this dark side to him. A sad side. But when I read that he badmouthed Margaret and then he talked about some of these women, I thought, no, he's, he's a psychopath, for sure. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting so far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And Alexis has her mic set up with a bunch of scrunchies today. So you know we are off to a good episode. It's, it's, a, it's a good episode when Alexis is fumbling with her microphone and making sure it is standing up just right. Um, before we get into our episode, I'm going to give myself a little shout out right, right now because yesterday... Um, with the Lady Gang, I released a clothing line with Express. So if Ooh. any of you fashionable broads out there want to get some really cute clothes, go to Express.com. Just had to give myself a little shout out. Do they do a search for Lady Gang? How do you do? How do you find it? Well, it's on the front page. And then, well, yeah, but <laughs> I mean, you don't know. I mean, somebody might be listening to this two weeks from now and it won't be on the front page. That's true. You can just search Lady Gang and our entire collection is there. There's pretty much something for everyone. So we're really excited about it. Billy, what day is it today? You know what? There's a lot of days today. Actually, not a lot of days, but the one day I like, it's National Ice Cream Sunday Day. And this actually means a lot to me because for some reason, whenever I talk about, this is going to get deep a little bit, but whenever I talk about murder victims and when people say, uh, oh, they were they they were marginalized. They were they were drug users. They were they you know th- there's so much of that in society where you don't see their picture in news. One of the things I always say is that they could have gotten enough money to eat an ice cream sundae. For some reason, that seems like so much freedom to me and life to me. So this actually means a lot to me. Well, that's sweet, Billy. What's your favorite ice cream sundae? You know what? If I got a little chocolate, a little peanut butter, throw a little peanut butter in there, throw a little hot fudge in there, throw a little um, uh, 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 whipped cream in there, you know, that's that's my that's my good thing. A deep, dark chocolate. Mm, 
a classic mm-hmm. Sunday. Well, now I want some ice cream, but uh, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. For more than four decades, the brutal murders of two young women whose bodies were discovered strangled and brutalized in the hills near Stanford University, less than a mile apart from one another, remained a total mystery. The man who killed them, John Getru, managed to fly under the radar, maintaining the appearance of living a pretty normal life. Those who knew him describe a family man, a Boy Scout leader, a loving father and grandfather. They had no idea that the man they thought they knew had been attacking sexually assaulting, and murdering young women since 1963. The consequences and stigma of committing such a heinous crime did not follow John Getru when he returned to the United States. He was left free to his own devices, and he took full advantage of his anonymity. Last week, we took you through Getru's high school years on the base where he killed Margaret Williams. Margaret's murder haunted our first-degree Barbara, and in 2017, she was shocked to hear his name in the news yet again. Because over the years, Barbara never forgot about Margaret and never forgot about John Getru. And that's because a number of her friends and her and her sister and then her sister-in-law, who was her best friend on the base, they all kept in touch. And this story did not ever go away. It would come up here and there, and they always wondered what happened to John Getru. We had this story in common. And so, yeah, we would talk about it, you know, whenever anything like that came up. And we'd say, well, I just, I wonder where he is. And I wonder this, but you know, back then, God, we didn't have social media. We didn't have internet. We had nothing. So all we did would we talk about it and talk about how scary it was. And I don't know. Then after a while, you know, you move on and you let it go. But every once in a while, if something happened. And so get this. My sister and I, we do like your shows. We like podcasts like this. She's listening to one called Case File. So she was listening to that as she fell asleep. That's what. That's how she falls asleep. And she said she was just about asleep, and she hears the name Getru. And she sits up in bed and yells at her husband, wake up, wake up. This is about John Getru, because he was over there, too. And it's about um, a girl who was killed in Stanford. And in the last 15 minutes, he talks about Getru. Very short. I started Googling, and I found that Palo Alto article that told a lot. And I just went from there and started reading everything. And I know all about Bundy, and you've learned about their personalities and whatnot. And as soon as she said that, I said, Nina, didn't you always think he'd be a serial killer? Well, we kind of laughed about it, which is not appropriate. But she goes, yes, of course he could be. Of course he could be a serial killer. 
And there's no doubt that John Getru is a serial killer, but to what degree? To answer that, we need to go back to the beginning. Today's case takes us back to August 26th of 1944. And this is the date that marked the birth of John Arthur Getru. The movie playing in the theaters was Marriage is a Private Affair, starring Lana Turner and James Craig. And as far as songs topping the charts, Bing Crosby's Swinging on a Star was the song everyone was listening to. Now, there's no one setting for today's case, but we'll start essentially where the villain began. And that's Newark, Ohio which is a city 33 miles east of Columbus. Now, Newark is the 20th largest city in Ohio. It's not terribly big. And what it's most known for are the Newark Earthworks, which is a major ancient complex built by the Hopewell people. And remnants of those earthworks still exist today. During the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the Licking County Fair took place inside the Great Circle Mound, which is one of the largest of these structures. And then the Ohio National Guard utilized the Octagon Mound as a drill field. And it's here in Newark, Ohio, that John Arthur Getru was born on August 26, 1944. His dad was Major Charles J. Getru. His mom, Irma K. Getru. He had two siblings, Danny and Marthea. He stayed in Newark until he was four. And then the Getru family frequently returned to Ohio for visits between being stationed at bases around the world for most of John's childhood and for his adolescence. When John was in grade school, we know that he was an army brat. But an ongoing theme you'll notice throughout this episode is that it's incredibly difficult to try to piece together where people were in the 1950s, in the 1960s, in the 1970s, even in the 80s. On Ancestry.com, I did find a ship log that proved that John Getru sailed from Japan to San Francisco in 1955. But tracking a miner down in the 50s and 60s is no easy feat. And the fact that he even found that surprised me because it was very hard to figure out where he was, which base, which country at which times. Right. And John Getru's picture appears in the Newark High School yearbook in 1961 as a sophomore. So he attended high school in Ohio, if only for a short time, likely when his father was between assignments. And we know that prior to his arrival in Germany, where he went to school with a first degree Barbara, he had spent time in Hawaii and also North Carolina. And we do know that he was attending school on the base in Germany from 62 until 63. And it's in 1963 when John killed Margaret Williams. He then spent those measly two years serving a sentence for her murder between 64 and 66. And then he returns to the United States. But then what? What we can be sure of is that upon his return, it became clear that those two years in a German prison did not rehabilitate John Getru. Not even close. And we know that because we now know that more women met Margaret's fate. It's hard to know where John Getru landed immediately following his return from Europe. There are no records that can be found between 66 and 69. However, we do know that he got married to his first wife in Sparks, Nevada, which is a town within Reno. And by 1971, John and his wife moved to and settled into Palo Alto, California, which is near San Francisco. And at this time, he's working as a lab tech at Mills Hospital, which was located in Palo Alto. He later worked at the Stanford University Medical Center as a cardiac technician. 
And then eventually and oddly, John started working in security at Stanford University. The name of the company that employed him in 72 was officially listed as Plant Protection Services of Palo Alto. And we know that the 70s were rocked, cursed, whatever you want to call it, plagued with a number of prolific and extremely deadly serial killers, especially on the West Coast. We have Bundy. We have Raider. We have D'Angelo. We have the Hillside Strangler and so on and so forth. At the time, it wasn't clear how many serial killers were at work across California, but it was more than a few. We didn't have the technology to help connect cases, nor could information be spread quickly amongst police departments. Record keeping in general was lax. People could easily assume different names, new identities. And John Getro had all of this working in his favor. And the added bonus he had also was that he was a military brat, which makes it much more difficult to figure out where he'd been, where he was, or anticipate where he would go. And we know where he went, Palo Alto, Northern California, an area that was plagued by a rash of murders in the early 70s. And that included the murder of 21-year-old Leslie Marie Perlov. Leslie was a Stanford University Law School student, and she also worked part-time at the North County Law Library. On February 16, 1973, Leslie went on a walk in the hills near Stanford University. And there was a very specific reason for this trek. She wanted to find a viewpoint for one of the hills that she wanted to have painted on canvas for her widowed mother's birthday. So after work, she drove her orange 1972 Chevy Nova to the gates of a rock quarry and parked. From there, it's believed that she walked northwest. And when Leslie never made it home, a search for her started immediately. First, her car was discovered, but there was no sign of Leslie or her purse anywhere. Police and volunteers searched the hills, and they eventually came upon Leslie's battered, beaten, and strangled body face down in some brush underneath an oak tree. She had been strangled by her scarf. It was still around her neck. Her skirt was pulled up around her waist, and other items of clothing were hanging off of her body as if they were forcefully removed. She was wearing a raincoat, and it was stained with blood. According to the police report, Leslie was not sexually penetrated, but her skirt was pulled up and her panties and pantyhose were stuffed in her mouth. Leslie's friends and family were at a total loss. Who would want to kill this young law student? They didn't know. I'm sure the sadness and confusion was overwhelming. Because remember, the term serial killer at this point hadn't even been coined when Leslie was killed. People didn't yet know the real threat of certain strangers we brushed shoulders with in the streets were carrying with them this disturbing and inexplicable lust to kill, torture, and rape, strangle innocent strangers. This concept is in the zeitgeist now, but it was not back then. Right. So the police at the time had no idea why Leslie was killed or who did it. The investigation was further confused when the day after her body was found, they found the body of a man in the very same hills where they had discovered Leslie's body. The remains were that of a 25-year-old man who had a lethal gunshot blast to the face. He would later be identified as Mark Rosvolt. His death was ultimately determined to be a suicide. And at first, speculation was rampant that perhaps this was the person who killed Leslie before taking his own life. But in reality, the location he chose to end his life eerily close to Margaret's remains was coincidental. 
And when the police began investigating Leslie's murder, the only clue of substance that really presented itself was in the form of a witness who said that she saw Leslie's orange Chevy Nova parked at the quarry and that there was a man with shaggy hair driving a car near Leslie's. And at one point, he pulled alongside and parked next to her car. But this wasn't really that much to go on. And while they're able to collect evidence at the scene where Leslie's body was recovered, they couldn't really do anything with this evidence due to the lack of technology. So, such is the case with so many murders that happened in the 1970s, Leslie's murder went cold. Ice cold. The following year, in the early evening hours of March 24th of 1974, 21-year-old Janet Ann Taylor left the home of one of her friends who lived in Palo Alto, and she decided to hitchhike back to her house, which was located in the nearby city of La Honda. Her friends begged her not to go, but she said she had to. She had to go home and let her two Doberman pinchers out for to go to the bathroom for the day. Witnesses later came forward and told police they spotted Janet walking on Junipero Serra Boulevard, which had a decent amount of cars on the road that evening. There was healthy traffic flow, and Janet was seen at 7.30 p.m. that night, and it was actually the last time anyone would ever see her alive. Because the next morning, a delivery driver found her body in a ditch alongside Interstate 280. Her body was fully clothed except for her shoes and purse, which were missing. She was wearing green corduroy pants. When police arrived at the scene, they discovered that Janet had been strangled, likely by her own gray turtleneck sweater. The medical examiner observed hemorrhages in her throat and fluid and blood in her lungs. Bruce marks appeared to have been made by the design on her knitted turtleneck sweater, as if something had pressed hard against it. The hyoid bone in her throat was fractured. There was also evidence of sperm in her crotch area, but no injuries. Her clothing was preserved, and although police investigated to the best of their abilities, they didn't come up with a suspect. And Janet was not a student at Stanford University, but her murder still sent shockwaves through the community because Janet's father, Chuck Taylor, was Stanford's athletic director and football coach. The police struggled to find out who killed Janet. At the time, she was working for a maritime information center in the Palo Alto area, and she was a student at a school six miles away from Stanford at Canada College in San Mateo County. There was a less than 10-minute drive between these two campuses, so she'd hitchhike between the two schools to meet up with friends or meet up with her dad or different activities like that. The murders of both Janet and Leslie were shocking, sickening, and they had a number of things in common. In both cases, the police and the victims' families believed that their daughters had no prior connection to their killer. Both were 21 years old. Both had connections to Stanford University. They were both found face down, both strangled with a ligature, and each found less than a mile from one another. But here's the thing. Unfortunately, their murders were not the first that occurred within the vicinity of Stanford University. There had been four others that were similar that had been perpetrated by an unknown assailant between 1972 and 1976. Both Janet and Leslie's cases began to go cold. That was until the arrest of Ted Bundy, who was known to target young women on the West Coast. Detectives wondered if he could have been responsible for their killings. But after looking into Bundy, detectives concluded that they couldn't find any concrete evidence that Bundy had either killed them or had taken them. Then in 1975, John Getru slips up. Here's what happened in the words of Diane Doe. 
who was now 62 years old. At this time, Getru was still married to his first wife, Sue. And even though the couple didn't have children, they were very involved in the Scouts for some odd reason. As a Scouts leader, John took the children to dances and other events and acted as a guardian, according to Doe. Can we just say real quick, it's very odd to be a Scout leader with no kids. So... Just, throw, just throwing that out there. We, uh, <laughs> it's... It's so strange. Strange. I don't know if you'd be able to do that these days. Mm, it, uh, People get sketched supposed out to be a lot a, faster now. Yeah. They're, they're supposed to be a big you know, process to go through, but I don't know. Um, that's, yeah, it's that's, weird. That seems like a no-go nowadays. Mm-hmm. In January of 1975, Diane was a 17-year-old scout explorer. Her parents were on a vacation when she and three of the boys in her troop decided to go to a midnight movie and then get some pizza. Their parents would only allow this kind of late night outing if they were accompanied by an adult and one of the boys had suggested that they invite John Getru. And once Diane got home, she said she heard a knock on the door. It was John Getru. And he said that the other boys were still wide awake and were planning to meet at her house. So the boys were going to come back over and this party was going to keep going. But the boys never came. And as Diane and John Getru sat there and waited for the quote-unquote boys to come who would never come, John began to question her about some uncomfortable subjects, like her relationship with one of the boys. And then he started probing her about her experiences with kissing boys. John also wanted to know about Diane's best friend and other boys in the troop, asking similar questions about their relationships. And this made Diane extremely uncomfortable. John Getru's 31, she's 17. It's a very odd situation we have. At a certain point, he started kissing her. And Diane said, think of Sue. Think of your wife. Because remember, Diane also knows Sue. So John told her that they were having troubles and weren't getting along. And he continued to kiss her. And then he pushed her onto the sofa. Mind you, Diane's little brother is asleep in the bedroom down the hall. And she protested and tried to get up. But he grabbed her by the throat and began to tighten his grip. He threatened her to be quiet and said he could hurt her. John Getru remained on top of her. He took off her clothes below the waist and he raped her. And most of the time, he kept one hand firmly around her throat. Diane recalled that the boys in their troop had talked him up as sort of this amazing leader. They often said that he was very strong. He had taken martial arts. After John left Diane's house... She went to a friend's house where she told the parents about the rape. John Getru was arrested for raping Diane, and he pleaded not guilty, and the case went to court. The teenage girl testified that during the rape, John was choking her and said, I have my hand at your throat and I could hurt you. John was given a deal and was able to plead guilty to statutory rape. He paid a $200 fine, and he was sentenced to six months in jail. However, five months of his sentence were suspended. So this piece of shit got one month for violently raping a 17-year-old. And on top of all that, he was allowed to serve his time on weekends in county jail. Like, is this familiar to anybody? Does it remind anybody of fucking Jeffrey Epstein? It's insane. And just so we're clear, he received two years in jail for killing Margaret He gets one month in jail for the violent rape of a minor, plus this $200 fine. And for anybody that knows, this is less than three parking tickets in L.A. It's fucking insane. And I'm really sure that he learned his lesson. 
It's like, why would he not do it again? Nothing happens to him. He has no repercussions. <laughs> no, and one of the things that I want to point out, people always ask us, like, why were the 70s such a big time for serial killers? And, and a lot of it is because that they started out raping women and they got so such small sentences and then they if graduated any. on. Yeah, exactly. The odds were that women weren't going to feel the support they needed to feel strong enough to take it to court. So a lot of women just didn't bother. As we, I mean, we talk about this all the time. It happens now. Women don't bother now because they don't want to deal with the nightmare that they often have to. You teach people how to treat you. And if people aren't getting punished for brutalizing and killing and raping, then they're not going to learn their lesson. And they're going to think we're here at their disposal. I mean, you get in more trouble for jaywalking than this dude got in trouble for violently, violently raping somebody. So... How gross. And said, and the girl that he raped, the, the Girl Scout, and he said she came on to him. So he got like one month of weekends in jail. I'll tell you what this really shows, too. It was certainly a man's world back then. Back then, what were you wearing? Mm-hmm. Well, fuck you. But yeah, his hand was slapped, just like Epstein. He has all those girls. They put him in jail in Florida for, what was it, one year on the weekends only. I mean, another thing that I want to point out is that now we have John killing Leslie in 73, right? We have him killing Janet in 74, and we have him committing a violent rape in 75. So I'm no mathematician, and I'm certainly not the math genius in this group, but I see a pattern. Um, That's one violent attack per year with no repercussions to this point. Virtually none. I'm sorry. A $200 fine, I'm sure, was catastrophic. So... We ask you, like, what are the odds that he is going to stop? Those odds are probably pretty low. We'll be back with the story after this ad break. Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. It's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries of state island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Android. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on the first degree. And when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV. And that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. And the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a 
a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. There is very little known about where John Getcher was and what John Getcher was doing between 1975 and 1978. There are no public records available from that time that make any indications. The next time he pops up was in October of 78. That's when he and his first wife divorce, and he marries his second wife, Linda Ann Caputo. Despite his criminal record, Getcher and his second wife joined a scouts troop while in Ohio. According to an April 1st, 1980 article in the Newark Advocate, they were in the Hanto Yo Society which is an explorer's post open to all youth ages 14 and older and adults, which is dedicated to teaching Native American traditions. In these public records detailing this marriage and this move, John is using the last name Getru, spelled G-E-T-R-E-W, instead of G-E-T-R-E-U. Remember, by now, he has a rape on his record. So this was a deliberate effort to distance himself from that crime. And now between 1978 and 1988, we kind of lose track of John altogether. And there's very little that we know about what he was doing during this time. And this should probably be the period of time that we're examining the most closely when attempting to connect him with these other crimes. In 1988, John pops back up on the public records radar when he buys property in Alameda County, California. And at this point, he's a father with two sons. After moving back to California, Getru lived a seemingly unremarkable life in the Bay Area from the 80s to the present. He was raising a family and joining civic organizations such as the Elks Lodge. 
In 2003, John's second wife dies of cancer. And in the early 2000s, he really leans into this quote-unquote American dad sort of vibe. In 2007, he served as the exalted ruler of the Fremont Elks Lodge, 2121 in Fremont, California. Then in 2008, John Getrew married his third wife. And you have to remember that when John Getrew was masquerading as a family man, he was killing. And yet, he was not on law enforcement radar whatsoever. But somebody else was. The Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, who we now know as the Golden State Killer. From 1976 to 1986, Joseph D'Angelo was doing the same thing John Getrew was, popping up and killing in various cities across California. That man is, retroactively, almost just as difficult to track and pinpoint where he was, what he was doing and where he was working as John Getrew is. And D'Angelo's murders had gone unsolved for almost 40 years when the FBI announced that they were reviving their efforts to capture the man they were now referring to as the Golden State Killer. They offered a $50,000 reward. They put up billboards with the sketches of the GSK suspect. And while it was known that there was this revived effort to find a suspect, no one at that time really knew what was going on behind the scenes. Law enforcement was using genetic genealogy to search for GSK. And with GSK, genetic genealogy technology snagged its first big win, and that was the capture of Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. And on the heels of their success and the use of the technology to capture GSK, they started to look to genetic genealogy to solve other cases that had long been considered cold. Last week, we profiled the murder of Margaret Williams, and we discussed how Margaret's little brother Evan was only seven years old and living on the base in Germany when his big sister was killed. Well, as an adult, he called the law enforcement assigned to the Golden State Killer Task Force to tell them about John Getrew. And while Barbara was much older than Evan at the time of Margaret's murder on the base, she certainly knew who Margaret's little brother was. Do you know that when my sister, two days later, or maybe a day, two days later, my sister was walking back from having babysat for somebody, and she saw Evan in the window of their apartment, the window, it was open, and he yelled down to her, my sister was killed. He was seven and a half. My sister was killed. And Nina just looked at him and she she didn't know what to say. And she came home and told me, and I was like, oh my God. Evan said the following to the Palo Alto Journal. Quote, when there was a push to find the Golden State Killer, I was concerned that the California authorities would not have known about the murder in Germany. When the FBI asked for leads, I let them know that this man was the man who took my sister's life and he was living in California. Now, the timeline for when the police looked at Getru following Evan's call and when they realized he wasn't GSK, when they realized D'Angelo was GSK, and when they realized John Getru could actually be connected to other cold cases is unknown. And even just saying that is complicated and convoluted. But just know those sequence of events did occur. We know in 2017, the police started looking at John Getrew, trying to figure out where he was in 1973 and 1974 when Leslie and Janet were murdered. And luckily, they had DNA from each crime scene. So the police knew these were solvable crimes. All they needed to do was find the owner of this mysterious DNA. So around the same time that it was becoming known that John Getrew was connected to other murders here in the United States, 
Barbara and Evan reconnected on Facebook. Of course. So I told, the thing with Evan is, when I found him on Facebook, I told him who I was. I said, I don't want to bother you. I don't want to invade you. But I knew Margaret and you didn't because you were only seven. And he said, oh, tell me anything you know. So when I told him all about her and how sweet she was and how we fixed her up that day and all of that, he said, I've never known any of that. He said, I don't know that. I didn't know that I went to the window. So he said, I am so thankful that you've told me these things. So when I uh, texted with Evan, I said, I said, Evan, I have to be careful because I, I don't really know you. You know, I haven't seen you since you were seven. But I think this man has probably killed women in Ohio when he lived there for six years and all over uh, the Stanford area. And he said, me too. By now, Joseph D'Angelo had been identified as the Golden State Killer. And by April of 2018, he had been charged with the 13 GSK murders and all the other prosecutable offenses connected to his killing spree. And in regards to the pursuit of John Getru as a potential murder suspect, while they didn't have the smoking gun they needed, they had connected Leslie's murder to Janet's. Police had been able to extract DNA from under Leslie's fingernails, and they retrieved DNA off the pants Janet had been wearing when she was killed. In regards to Leslie's case, the male DNA under her nails was a significant finding. The scientist who conducted these tests said the following in a Palo Alto online article. Quote, It's not that common to find another person's DNA as a major contributor under a victim's fingernails. DNA from someone other than the victim is found less than 20% of the time. The presence of another person's DNA, which in this case matched Getru, can't be explained by a handshake or a pat on the back. It would have been from physical contact with skin cells or bodily fluids, such as semen. So investigators had all the pieces that they needed to put this huge puzzle together. They had Getru's name. They were aware of Margaret's murder back in Germany in 1963. And there were glaring similarities between all three of them. By now, they had also learned that John Getru was working at Stanford University as a medical and lab tech. And using genetic genealogy, Santa Clara law enforcement had obtained a genetic sample from a distant cousin of John Getru's, and the results indicated that somebody in his family tree had been the one to kill Leslie Marie Perlov. They were so close. So police went through this family tree one branch at a time, looking for members of the Getru family who could have been in Palo Alto during the right time in the right area. Police went through the family tree one branch at a time, looking for members of a family who could have been in Palo Alto, the right area, during the right handful of years that aligned with Leslie's murder, until they landed on John Getru. At this point, John was living in the Bay Area in a town called Hayward that was across the San Francisco Bay from Mateo, California. And to get John Getru's DNA, Santa Clara County Sheriff's detectives followed he and his wife and watched them throw away disposable coffee cups in a plastic trash can. The police grabbed the discarded cups and tested them for DNA. The DNA from Getru's cup matched the DNA found under Leslie Perlov's nails. Yep, never, and I'll tell you why it got solved, because of Evan. That's what I think. Evan said, you've got to trace this man's DNA. And they said, well, we can't just go get his DNA. We don't have any, and how do we match it? And, and then they did that 
genealogy and found a cousin back in Ohio. And, you know, I guess you know how they match the, the different things on the DNA and found a match. Then they started looking at all the Getrus, you know, can we find any of the Getrus? And then they found, oh, there is one. He is in Palo Alto. Hmm. And so then they made the connections. We have to thank the detective department, too. You know, some police departments, they go, we don't care. That was 50 years ago. So on November 20th, 2018, after 45 years of her case being cold, John Ketcheru was arrested for the murder of Leslie Marie Perloff. Once in custody, he made a potentially significant statement during questioning. He told the detective he did not know Leslie Perloff, and he had not had sexual relations with her. He also said that he had never been in the hills where her body was found. When shown a photo of the 21-year-old victim, however, Getcher recognized her as a Stanford graduate. And after John Getru's arrest, people who had known him from all around the globe started to learn the truth about who he'd ultimately become, or maybe who this man had always been from the beginning. He, he married early, and she divorced him. She probably, she was smart. And then he married again, and she died. And he married a third time, and she stayed with him. And they lived in a little hovel of an apartment I don't know if it was, I don't know L.A. very well or Palo Alto, whatever, Stanford, but he lived not far, like 15 minutes away from the university, and uh, they didn't have any money. He ended up being a carpenter, I think, and just like so many of these stories, when they interviewed the neighbors and whatnot, they'd go, oh, we didn't know that. He was the nicest man. He used to buy our kids presents, and I'm like, yeah, he did, <laughs> because he wanted to perp on them, and I... I I did feel sorry for John, and I felt like, even from the beginning, there was just this dark side to him, a sad side. But when I read that he badmouthed Margaret, and then he talked about some of these women, I thought, no, he's, he's a psychopath, for sure. Word eventually reached Evan Williams, the brother of John Getru's first known victim, Margaret Williams. Evan said the following to the PJ star, quote, I always had this feeling I might be made aware of him committing crimes later in life. The article continues from time to time, a memory of his sister or a news story about unsolved serial murders led Evan Williams to research John Getru and his whereabouts. And he admitted that he's had to work on himself to prevent the research from consuming him. The burden I carried believing that Getru had likely murdered, raped and harmed more people was one I felt I was meant to carry until any time I might be able to have any influence in justice happening and hopefully some people being spared. Leslie Perloff's family lived for decades not knowing who killed her. And her sister Diane had kept in touch with the detectives who worked the case for those 40 years. And she never gave up hope that it would be solved. And then only a handful of months after John Getru was charged with Leslie's murder, in May of 2019, he was charged with Janet Taylor's. Scientists had been able to extract DNA from the clothes Janet was wearing when she was killed. And like in the case of Leslie, the DNA was a match to John Getru's. He was held on $10 million bail. $10 million bail? That's a lot. Who's posting that? <laughs> no one. <With> Scientologists? <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> That's about it. Maybe. 
The arrest of John Getru answered two questions that have begged to be resolved for more than 40 years. Who killed Leslie Perloff? Who killed Janet Taylor? But with the clear outcome in regards to these two cold cases, these two questions, a million more questions emerged. Here's what we seem to know about John Getru for sure. It appears that he killed women in 1963, then in 73, then in 74. But how many others has he killed? This is the question on the forefront of everyone's minds. And once John was in custody, investigators started to piece things together. And much of their work in building a timeline has been included in this episode. But as we've mentioned, there are gaping holes in terms of information that can be provided by public record. Once news of his arrest became public, people who thought they knew John Getru started to come forward and share their experience with this serial killer in disguise. To many who have spoken, John Getru seemed like a perfectly regular person. Nothing exceptional, nothing extraordinary, but nothing overtly alarming either. Some neighbors said that in his old age, John was the type of man who gave Christmas presents to kids in the neighborhood just because. A man who had worked as a carpenter, a Boy Scout leader. He'd been a father, a grandfather, and a husband three times over. He had worked as a lab tech at Stanford and Mills Hospitals, and he liked to work with his hands, dabbling in carpentry and woodworking. Meanwhile, as detectives work through the arduous process of figuring out who John could have killed in which states or countries, John Getru pleads not guilty of the murders of Janet and Leslie at his arraignment hearing. I, when I said, so do you think, I said, I think he's killed. He killed a woman every year there for about four years. He raped a girl, then he killed. A year later, he killed. And a year later, he raped, um, what's the girl's name? Sharon Lucchese. She's the one that I And I said, there's no way he stopped right. after four years. He just moved back to Newark, Ohio with his wife and lived there a couple years. I guarantee you there are cold cases in that area. And he was killing women there. And then when that got too hot, he went back to... LA. And of course, his case comes up in the middle of September. So we'll see. Why do guys like D'Angelo or like John Getru plead not guilty when there is so much glaring evidence stacked against them? Well, in cases like this, by now, they realize that it's likely that they're going to be spending the rest of their lives in prison. So what the fuck else are they going to do? It's entertaining. Scumbags like them like to relive their crimes, like to see the sad family members in the in the courtroom audience. I mean, this is the kind of shit they live for. They haven't had this much excitement since the last time they killed. So this is why these fuckers do this, even though they're going to lose. Yeah, and it, and it's their it's their ace. That's it's the it's the only bargaining chip that they have left, and that's exactly what they're doing with it. So since Getru's capture, Northern California investigators have been working to contact the police departments in the various cities where John has lived over the years. And even though interdepartmental communication is better than it was in the 70s, it's still pretty awful. And they have their work cut out for them. Luckily, the presumed solving of Leslie and Janet's cases did generate a considerable amount of media coverage. Getru's angry, chilling, 74-year-old mugshot was circulated widely. And the image of his face eventually found its way into the home of a 70-year-old Simi Valley woman named Sharon Lucchese. And she recognized his face immediately. 
Sharon recounted her story in an article for the P Journal Star. She said in the 60s and 70s, she had been living in Hollywood, California, and she'd sometimes go to a social mixer at the Christian church that she attended. And she had an encounter with John Getru after one of these social gatherings. John had been with another attendee at this church mixer, and he asked her out on a date. And Sheridan was kind of uncertain about the guy because he seemed a little bit older than her, but two older church employees urged her to go out with him. So she agreed to grab coffee with him somewhere for a date. Sharon got into John's car, but instead of driving to a coffee shop, he ascended the dark, winding streets of the Hollywood Hills before parking in a very secluded spot. Then, this guy turned to Sharon, put his hands around her neck, and started to choke her. Sharon said, I spent the entire night with his hands around my throat. I thought he was going to snap the tiny bones in my neck. He repeatedly choked her, relaxing his hands just in time before she would lose consciousness. And then between the choking episodes, he would chat seemingly to himself saying God had given him a directive. Quote, he said he had to kill me. He said God told him he had to kill beautiful women who are a temptation to his Christian brothers. Sharon recalled that as this man stared in her eyes, she didn't panic. The choking and releasing continued for hours until the sun came up. Then she said, for some reason, when the sun came up, he decided to let me live. Sharon believes that her ability to stay calm saved her life because if it was fear-triggered excitement that John Getru was hoping to get from Sharon, he wasn't going to get it because she didn't indulge him by panicking. Sharon also thinks that perhaps after spending so many hours with him, he reconsidered. Maybe he had been wrong in assuming she was some type of temptress, she thought. He decided, this is a quote from her, he decided I wasn't the kind of girl he wanted to kill. The following morning, Sharon got out of the car and he drove away. Sharon planned to tell the police, but by the time she walked home, she was too upset to talk about what had happened. I just fell apart, she said. I didn't know there was such an evil in the world. Because she was afraid she did not report the assault. I was just a dumb kid, she said. Now Sharon says she feels guilty, thinking that she could have prevented him from eventually committing Leslie and Janet's murders in the years that followed. So it wasn't until 1989 that Sharon told anybody about what had happened to her. She first told her fiancé and then later her son, who was a child at the time, to convey to him that he should never take chances on strangers. And this assault really haunted her for years. So as soon as she saw this mugshot, she knew it was him. Sharon said that despite the fact that decades had passed, his eyes looked the same and she'd never forget them. And she said, quote, I've been looking for those eyes for 50 years. And while there's no real way to really corroborate Sharon's story, the police don't really have any reason to doubt her account. Because while no proof in the form of public documents have surfaced that can prove John Getru was in Hollywood at this time. We know it's possible that he was there. Hollywood is hundreds of miles from Santa Clara and San Mateo counties, but perhaps Getru lived in Hollywood before he moved to Stanford University area, or maybe he just paid a visit to Hollywood flying under the radar, getting hired to do manual labor, working as a carpenter, staying at motels. People were paid cash and under the table. You could rent a room in a house for cash, motels for cash. 
You could give fake names everywhere you went. And if John Getrew was killing women in Los Angeles starting in 1969, that is a terrifying prospect because we know how many murders were happening here at that time. We'll never be able to sort through all of them to figure out which one he may have committed. So the information, though, that Sharon provided to the police is extremely valuable to investigators because up until this point, they had no idea what motivated John Getrew. They want to understand and analyze John Getrew's impulses, his motives, and maybe, just maybe, if they can't understand these things about this particular killer, they may be able to unlock more cold cases that he's responsible for. And there are deductions that we can make about John Getrew when we line up his known crimes and compare them and contrast them. Now, his California slayings were similar regarding rape and strangulation to the first murder of John's that we knew of, which was Margaret Williams in 1963. Margaret, Janet, and Leslie had each been killed by strangulation with a ligature. Margaret with her pantyhose, Leslie with her scarf, and Janet with the collar from her own sweater. Each young woman was a brunette, and each was left face down outside. And John Getrew evaded capture by changing his name on a whim whenever he really needed to. And plus, the whole military brat thing made him hard enough to track down as it was. John also leveraged variables that were really symptomatic of the 70s. Women didn't report rapes for a number of different reasons, and there were dozens of active serial killers in California in the 70s, and police departments weren't really communicating with one another to begin with. There's something we brought up in last week's episode that we want to circle back to. The irony that John Getrew was caught essentially because of the search for GSK. And when you look at these two predators next to each other, there are glaring parallels between them. John Getrew was born in 1944. Joseph D'Angelo was born in 1945. John Getrew was a son of an army sergeant, and so was Joseph D'Angelo. And for a time, Joseph D'Angelo lived on a base in West Germany where his father was stationed. And it's rumored that D'Angelo witnessed the rape of his sister at the hands of two soldiers while living on this base in Germany. And as we know from our discussion with Barbara, John also lived on a German army base as a kid where he committed his first murder. D'Angelo became a cop, first for the Exeter PD, where he worked for three years, and then the Auburn PD, where he worked for one year before he was fired. And then while John never actually worked in law enforcement, he did become a security guard at Stanford for many years. There's also the fact, and this is just wild, that Joseph D'Angelo and John Getrew look like identical twins. (laughs) If you Google what they look like now, I'm like, this is the same guy. Like it could have been, maybe this is the new fucking archetype though. Maybe these are these guys. And it's just like, this dude looks exactly like D'Angelo. So yeah, how it, it how much can we trust? Yeah. And you know what? All of these serial killers have these dead eyes that we hear about over and over. Yeah, because D'Angelo's the black eyes. Too. Yeah, but although D'Angelo has blue eyes, and this guy looks like he might have brown, but I can't really tell in his mugshot. They look like twins. It's the first when I pulled that up, I went maybe I pulled up the wrong person, and I read the name underneath, and I said, "Oh my God, they could be brothers." How gross! So the police believe that John Getrew spent time working as a carpenter, moving around the state, following available work and killing along the way. And what's interesting is that that was one of the main theories about who GSK was and why he was moving around the state undetected. 
that maybe he was a carpenter for hire and he was just following the work. Another big GSK theory prior to his capture was that the suspect worked in the medical field because there seemed to be medical connections to each one of the murder victims. John Getru was working as a medical tech at Stanford in the early 70s. And it's said that Leslie Perlov and Janet Taylor had each been patients at this medical facility, suggesting that Getru may have stalked his victims before killing them. And we know that a large part of GSK's MO included the element of stalking. That's, you know how they groom people? It totally is. That's why they get those jobs. There he security guard at Stanford, and he's in his early 20s. I, there's more than two girls that he killed, I'm just saying. And for him not to come clean and say, now I don't believe in, in God necessarily, I don't believe in heaven and hell, but I wish that he did, and he'd say, before I die, I want to tell you all the truth. He won't. He's a pig. And I felt sorry for him when I first pulled it up. First of all, I was shocked. Second of all, I thought, you know, I wondered about him all these years. And then when I read about what he said about the women and how they kind of came on to him and how he liked scouting, and then he raped this Girl Scout, and I thought, you're a pig. I hope you die. Another shared characteristic between Getru and D'Angelo is that they both operated as serial killers while posing as these wholesome family men. While a lot has been revealed about John Getru, there's so much we don't know about him and about serial killers in general. What compelled him to choose to kill one girl but not another? And these are questions that still haunt Barbara. I don't think that you're necessarily born good. There's dark and there's light, and I think we have a lot of both. If they're, I mean, I am sure that nature and nurture work in common. I'm sure of that. The human animal is very flawed. I'll just say the human gene pool needs a lot of cleaning. I think, I think that we walk among murderers, rapists every day, and we don't know it. I'm convinced. So now it wasn't like I'll never trust men again. On the other hand, I'm divorced. <laughs> the idea that John Gatru could be responsible for more murders is chilling. And it's terrible that in years past, there were men who came before the John Getrus and the Joseph D'Angelos, men who disguised themselves as kind, loving father figures. And these men died, taking these secrets to their grave because they were so good at leading double lives and killing without drawing any attention that the truth about the cruel psychopaths they were was never revealed. These men took any hope of justice, answers, or closure for the families of their victims to their graves with them. In more time, more serial killers will be outed thanks to genetic genealogy technology. And I think slowly, many of us will realize that we ourselves crossed paths and brushed shoulders with serial killers. Because there are likely a lot more than we think. And while this justice and their exposure is absolutely necessary, our worlds are going to change with the realization that there are so many more men who love to kill than we ever could have fathomed. And beyond that, they're a lot closer to home than we ever could have imagined.
All right. Well, a huge thank you for our first degree, Barbara. She was with us for the past two episodes and she's also in our Facebook group. Um, if you have a story you would like to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Jack Vanek at Billy Jensen. Join our Facebook group. We're talking all the true crime things and stick around because we're going to kill some time and answer your questions. And remember, and this goes out to the prison officials in Brooklyn, only you can prevent Gillian Maxwell from killing herself and keep your friends close. But not that close. Happy Ice Cream Sunday Day. Sources for today's episode includes The Newark Advocate, U.S. Military Records, Ancestry.com, Palo Alto Journal, the Palo Alto Online, the PJ Star, court documents, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French, and it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten, and I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the First Degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Aloe Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Aloe Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to Aloe Moves com and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST.
I took a pill that I bought <laughs> from CVS and outside the, bo- outside the box, it says stay awake pills. <laughs> so it is and a no dose. Yeah. And I'm like, this is going to be good. Um, okay. Well, we're going to keep that in, but this is the episode of killing time. <laughs> and I'm going to start this off with, we had a social distance hang this weekend and we got pretty drunk and I remember at like 10 p.m., Alexis asked Jared if you guys wanted to take some caffeine pills. <laughs> did Jared, did you take one, Jared? No. <laughs> yeah, did we Jared, t- hit, Jared has seen the episode of Saved by the Bell and he knows. I'm so <laughs> scared. <laughs> no, but I also, also, the next day, I wanted to play you guys the Kanye West song. I'm like, you have to hear the new Kanye song. And you guys are like, you made us listen to it multiple times last night. And I was like, oh. Yeah. You know what? We deserved that. I haven't had a friend hang in a very, very long time. And yeah, except Jack I- forces shots on people. And I've never had someone in the last five years suggest tequila shots like for no so reason other times. than just to get fucked up. You're like, we're getting fucked up. I'm like, okay. And then I did. But here's the here's the thing. Like in normal life, you know, I'm a grandma and I want to go to bed, but I want to be in bed by like 8 p.m. every day. And there's something about the situation of quarantine and the fact that like nobody gets to have any fun. Then when I have a little taste of fun, I want to keep it going until I can't go no more. Right. And you, you did. <laughs> And it, the, the the evening evolved where it was like, yeah, let's work on our multi-platinum record. And then the tears came. And then it was yeah. like, then it was like, let's take more shots and let's have a glass of water. And then I tried once again to work on our multi-platinum record. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen. But here's the thing. I don't think that there it's a real friend hang unless somebody balls their eyes out. And then the last time that we all socially distanced hung... <laughs> I balled my eyes out for four hours. Balled your eyes out. It's got to be someone. Billy, it's your turn next. my turn next. Yeah. (laughs) Are you ready for it? I don't know. You'll have to break through those barriers. We will. Billy, are you a a crier? I've been known to cry on occasion. (laughs) That, you know what, Billy, that's that's what makes you a real man, is a Mm -hmm. man that can admit he cries. Jared cries all the time. All the time? (laughs) Sometimes he's cried many times in front of me. So, you know, Jared, you know what? You have kind, kind eyes. You should do nothing but cry. It suits you. (laughs) (laughs) You have the eyes that could heal anything with just a soft glance (laughs) in the right direction. You can bring happiness to anyone who receives your sight. That sounds like it. Can he hear me? <laughs> he can't yes. hear me. <laughs> yes, he can. I have he one can? of my headphones turned outwards, so Jared can hear your messages. <laughs> okay. So anyways, <laughs> the point of this killing time, last week, I asked all of our firsties in the Facebook group, if you're not in the Facebook group, join the Facebook group. We are having a ball in there. And I just asked, you know, general questions that everybody would like to know, but mostly like focused on you know, quarantine life. So I think I'm going to start with this first question that we have mentioned in private before, but we really got to talk it out. And it's from Camille. And she said, Billy, if you had to be quarantined on an island with Jack or Alexis, who would it be and why? (laughs) 
Well, I responded in the Facebook group, and I'll tell you what I said. I said you would 100% pick Jack. I And I think somebody somebody answered this, and I, I did see this, and somebody answered And they answered it, because she sleeps more than me, and then you'd have more alone time. They nailed it, because Jack goes to bed at 9, and then I would be able to be alone uh, from 9 to like 2, and then I would sleep, and yeah, yeah, so it would be it would be Jack. Jared just sighed behind me. He goes, oh, it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> and I buy fucking off generic store brand caffeine pills to stay awake even when I don't yeah. need to. Even even if it, I can sleep in, I'll be like, nah, let's get this party started. <laughs> yeah. You would you would find some weird like weed on the island. This be like, this will make us like stay up for 24 hours. And I'd be like, I'm good. Thanks. You know what? <laughs> Why would you want to sleep if your dreams are just going to be nightmares? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay, that needs to be on a shirt. What was? It? Why would you sleep if your Why dreams would you are nightmares? Want to sleep if your dreams are nightmares? Yeah. Well, Alexis Linkletter. <laughs> my subconscious is trying to tell me something, and it's not to fucking go to sleep, bitch. Because we'll torment you. <laughs> we'll show you. You know what? Your mind, what your mind does to itself is worse than what reality does to you. And that 100%. is saying a lot because reality is not good to anybody right now. No. Yeah, it's a, just a prison within a prison to be in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Well, let's uh, move on to this next question. Wait, who would you be stranded with a desert island? Wait, wait a Me? second. I didn't choose. I oh, choose yeah, Jared. I, I choose Jared. <laughs> Okay, Alexis would be on an island with you, Jared. He just blew a kiss from across the room. Yeah. Did he blow it with his eyes? <laughs> he blew it with his kind, <laughs> sad, crying eyes. <laughs> oh, they heal. I feel better suddenly. Um, Who would I be on the island with? I mean, I'd have to be with Lex just because you're my bestie. And we've lived together before, so I know that we wouldn't kill each other. And with Billy, we I don't so know... I don't know what kind of arguments Billy and I would get into if we were alone, the two of us. Hmm. You know how no, you never we've know. Never, yeah, we've we've never really hung out alone before, so mm. no. interesting. It, it could be really bad. You know what? Let's take a cross country trip together. That would be amazing. <laughs> you know what? Road trip bonding experience, <laughs> dude. No one's friends after a road trip. Even your even the closest friends need like a two week break from each other mm -hmm. after a road trip because it's just like. Everyone just feels a little sick inside of a car. It's as a baseline. You just feel a little sick, a little motion sick, a little hot, a little, mm -hmm. a little irritable as a baseline. Then yes. add somebody else feeling sick and bitching about it and having to pee. And then someone being like, I paid for gas last time. And then suddenly <laughs> someone's like, <laughs> I want to go to Taco Bell. And I'm like, I want chicken nuggies. Like suddenly yeah. your best yeah. friend is your worst enemy. Well, and then also I think the fact that a road trip is really good in theory and really bad in practice. The first hour of a road trip is amazing. Yeah, Vegas, and then you, baby. Vegas. And then. See, even even a road trip to Vegas that's three and a half hours mm -hmm. is two and a half hours too long. It is. Any time in a car is a, is, is, is a torturous <laughs> endeavor. <laughs> I hate driving. Okay. Our next question is. It comes from Autumn. She says, what is something, a skill that you can do now that you couldn't do before quarantine? Have any of us learned a skill? I started running for the first time in my life. I didn't know I could do that. Were you not a runner before at all? No. 
Zero is it percent. hard? Is it hard to make so, yourself run? Um, not when you're this sad. <laughs> uh, because the endorphins are basically like a little carrot dangling in front of you that makes you keep going. <laughs> Uh, so no, I'm like, yes, give me the dopamine, anything but this. <laughs> Billy, have you learned that skill? Mine's, mine's similar. The workout I'm doing actually incorporates leg, uh, workouts. So you're not I'm, skipping leg day. I'm not skipping. Well, no, it's, it, I'm workout every day and it's 45 minutes every day. And then it actually includes leg stuff as well. And it's with this, like, it's a video of this Hollywood trainer guy and it, oh. it's, that's what I've been doing for the last two and a half months. Who's the Hollywood so trainer? Uh, his name is Dan Scardino. He like he did he did like Ryan Reynolds and uh, Hugh Jackman. Like he's like the superhero guy. You, you Jackman, you Hugh Jackman. He does a lot of humans, right? Mm, yeah. What about okay. you, Jack? My skill um, is not the same as yours because I well, I did actually work out for the first time in months this morning, so I feel oh, very proud of you myself. Did? So maybe I am, maybe I am a fitness enthusiast now. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, no, mine has been cocktail making, which is something. Oh, that's right. Yes. You know, I am not very um, confident in the kitchen even with making like a vodka soda. So this has been a good learning experience for me. And I'm making some like pretty crafty cocktails mm. and I feel I'm very good. Proud of you. I'm pr- I haven't yes. really experienced the fruits of that new, new talent, but I look forward to that soon. I know because every time like you want a drink, you just want a vodka soda. And I'm like, but Alexis, what about this pamplemousse ginger <laughs> twist? I don't know. Martini. Listen, May has a way to get me to agree to drink things that I never would normally drink. She made me drink like eight drinks that I would never say yes to last time I was over. Because who says no to your friend's mom? Like you say yes. Oh, do I want more chicken and biscuits? I don't like that. But yes, please. Another helping if it's a mom asking. (laughs) Like you can't say no to mom. I don't know. It's just bad manners. Like I, you were always just taught to be nice to your friend's mom. So May is like a queen. What am I going to irritate her? Never. Um, Okay. Last question. Last question, guys. Where did it go now? Oh, Alexis, I just think that we need to talk about this really quick. And it was um, from Becca. And she says, what movies and TV shows have you been watching during quarantine? And I just wanted to give a little shout out to the TV show Married at First Sight that Alexis and I have been binging. And it's... Amazing. It really is like what a what a concept. Like married at first sight. Like fucking married, and then you're married. <laughs> and you know what? No matter what, even if the person at the end of the aisle is is good looking, they're not good looking enough because your expectations are just like you're so shocked and it's sensory overload. It looks so embarrassing. Everyone thinks everyone is ugly. And it's yeah. just like so weird unless unless you were the six nine guy that turned out to be a psychopath and then like when you're not if your expectation if reality meets your expectations then it's gonna crash and burn you know but everything else people stay together on that show which is mind-blowing to me so it is it is quite a wild ride well because i think the thing is about marriage like they're not saying being obsessed with somebody and have crazy sex and be smitten and like then have it fizzle out. That's not what they're asking you to find. They're asking you to find 
companionship. They're asking you, know you, you to mean? have to have a healthy relationship, and that's really hard to do. Right, but it does seem like and how much. Okay, so they say they match people up based on all this data and shit. Do you think they really do that, or you think they're like you and you, good TV? <laughs> but we'll say <laughs> we'll say you're so compatible based on all these factors. Like, or do you think they're just like nah, like that one? I'll push that one's buttons. Let's do th- this. This is gonna be funny. I think they do that for some people for sure. Right. Like there's a specific couple. I don't want to like give any spoilers, but a specific couple on the season that we just watched. It's like people, it's like fucking butting heads all the time. And I'm like, yes, give me more. Yes. Billy, have you watched anything of note? I've been watching Flora's Lava. Flora's Lava is a great show too. Yeah. What just, is that? Just mind, mind, mindless, mindless. And then the new one, and then the new unsolved mysteries. Oh yeah. Unsolved yeah. mysteries. You know what? But I really wish this is my like problem with unsolved mysteries is I really wish they had a host. Yeah. You need, you need a new Robert stack and uh, who would, be, that's a good question that we can end with. Who would be a good host? The new Robert stack. See, I feel like they probably could have gotten, and I don't know who's going to come to mind, but a podcast host, like a true crime podcast host would be really good. But I don't uh-huh. know which one. But uh-huh. they need it. Like, that's the thing with Unsolved Mysteries. It was done really well, but nothing is setting that apart from any other true crime show that's out there. I agree. I agree. The only thing that's setting it apart is the paranormal UFO type stuff. That's the only thing that it's that's making it different. I think it's done well. So well. But yeah, but it's it's not. Uh, and, and obviously the reach is huge and they're going to get a response for the, the unsolved crimes, which I love, but it's not breaking any new boundaries and it potentially could have, but they were just like, nobody can replace Robert Stack. So we're just not going to do it, which but I get. I, I was also interested. I would have thought that, cause I've only watched three of the episodes, but one of them that I watched was the UFO one, which happened in like the sixties, I think. And I would have assumed that if they're going to do unsolved mysteries the way that they did it back in the day where they wanted to like crowdsource things to like solve cases, kind of like mm-hmm. what your podcast, other podcast does, that it would be more current cases. Yes. I you understand know? what you're saying. Yep. Because that one was so long ago that mm-hmm. like what new information could you possibly get about this UFO sighting in the 60s? I hear you. Yep. But I haven't seen I it know. yet. So I didn't chime in. It's really good. It's just again, it's like the it's missing the unsolved mysteriesness of the past. Right. And that's what it needs, but you know. All right, let's call this. Okay. Time of death, fifteen oh eight. Beep. Beep beep beep. Beep 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 beep. Hey mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, Yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost.